Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Not in vain. Not in vain. St. Paul, at the end of one of his densest and most finely argued chapters, he ends with those three words, not in vain. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in our Bibles, and it's this long discourse on the resurrection. Paul lays out how Jesus is risen, and therefore we shall arise. That should be a song, actually. Maybe we just, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> And at the end of this long chapter where he's unfolding the significance of the resurrection and this promise, this assurance that we have that because Christ is risen, we too shall arise, he ends in a way that you might think is a little bit of an anticlimax. He gets to the end of this long chapter on the resurrection and he could say, therefore, beloved brothers, take it easy, relax, because Jesus is risen. Or he could say, therefore, beloved brothers, don't worry about this old world because you know that we've got a new world yet to come. He could say, therefore, beloved brothers, everything that we do in this life, it's all going to be forgotten. Don't worry about that. Just look ahead to what is still to come. But he doesn't end in any of those ways. At the end of this discourse on the resurrection, he concludes by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Why end that way? At the end of this long chapter on the resurrection, why does he then turn back to talk about what we're doing now and giving this assurance that it's not in vain? St. John, in our vision today in Revelation, answers that question. It's the vision of the new Jerusalem. So last week we kind of zoomed out and we got this great big picture of the promise of the renewed creation that is yet to come. We looked at how it started all the way back in Genesis and finds its fulfillment and culmination there at the end with the renewed creation. And now we're going to zoom in a little bit within that renewed creation and see the life of the new Jerusalem of Christ's bride, the church, and what that life looks like and what accompanies that life. And as we do, we're going to find an answer to that question of why Paul would end his chapter on resurrection with this assurance that your labor is not in vain. But even more, than, more important than that, we're going to understand and see precisely why it is our labor is not in vain. And to do that, I want to kind of unpack and just walk through this, this long text. So if you've got your worship folder or Bible and you want to open up, we're going to be working our way through. There's three big chunks, three paragraphs in Revelation 21, 9 to 27. And so we're just going to take each of these paragraphs, each of these sections in turn. This first section, in beginning with verse 9, lays out the beautified bride. The beautified bride. John is summoned by one of the angels who says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And from there, he goes on to see this new Jerusalem. Now, to say that the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants had a complicated relationship with God would be a little bit like saying Aaron Rodgers has a complicated relationship with the Packers, for you football fans. Or that northern Michigan has a complicated relationship with winter, right? 
suffice it to say, it's an understatement. It's the understatement of the year. Because all throughout the scriptures, while God loves his people and says, you are my bride, I am married to you. One of the most common images that the prophets use in the Old Testament to describe the Israelites is that they're an adulteress or even a prostitute. It's a complicated relationship indeed. But when John sees this vision of the new Jerusalem and its inhabitants, all of that complication has washed away. He sees this bride as the holy city, Jerusalem. He sees her decked out and bejeweled. She bears the splendor and the glory of God. Because here, the people of God on the last day finally have been purified wholly. It's a, the, the fulfillment of that promise that we receive already at our baptism, as it said in Ephesians 5, that Christ Jesus, our bridegroom, that he has washed you and me with water and the word in order that he might present us to himself as a bride without wrinkle or spot or any blemish. In this life, more often than not, we feel ourselves to be a blemished bride. But finally, on the last day, the new Jerusalem is a beautified bride. And not only that, I want to draw your attention to another detail about the beautified bride that John sees. He goes on to say that he sees these 12 gates and that on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then furthermore, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, in previous weeks, we've talked about how these names, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, are symbolic for the full people of God. But I want to linger on this for just a second, that God incorporates these 24 names of those guys. Because if you know your biblical history, you know that among those 12 tribes, they were not always the most reliable dudes. I mean, if you just go all the way back, think of the story of Joseph, like not New Testament Joseph, but Old Testament Joseph with the fancy coat, right? You remember that story of Joseph and his 11 brothers, which were the 12 tribes of Israel? And they thought, you know what? We don't like Joseph. Uh, He's really kind of a punk, and so let's kill him. Let's just throw him into a well. Maybe we'll sell him off as a slave. Think, gosh, Really? These are the names that now God wants to inscribe on the, the gates of the heavenly, heavenly Jerusalem? And furthermore, he goes on to say the 12 apostles. And you guys know the history of the apostles. While they often did heroic acts of faith, they often had plenty of fickle faith too. I mean, you think of Peter most obviously denying the Lord, but needless to say, we have Judas as well. But the 12 names of the apostles are there as well. well what does this say to you and me? What it says to us is that when the bride of Christ is beautified, her history is hallowed. When the bride of Christ is beautified, her history is hallowed. All of our sin, all of those things that we're ashamed of and that we wish could just go away, finally on the last day, they do. It's burned away as so much dross. Author Eugene Peterson says, There's nothing so awful in my unfaithfulness or so obscure about my life that it isn't being fashioned into the foundation and entrance of heaven. See, when the bride is beautified, her history is hallowed, and that means your history and mine as well. So that when our Lord sees us, he sees us through the lens of his glorified Son. 
made holy, spotless, and pure. That's the first part of this vision of the new Jerusalem that John sees. But he goes on from there. There's much more still to see. And this next part, I'll admit to you, either it's going to cause you to widen your eyes in amazement or perhaps to roll your eyes in boredom. Uh, although if there's any jewelers here, you might get really excited, right? Because he, he goes on to say, verse 19, that the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper and sapphire and many other things that I'm not able to pronounce, and perhaps you guys are. But then finally, you have the 12 pearls on each of the gates, and finally, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. All right, so what's the significant, uh, significance of all these beautiful jewels? couple of things. First of all, if you know your Genesis 2 history, going back to Genesis 2, it tells us that at the Garden of Eden, we had bdellium and onyx and gold were found there. So once again, those same beautiful elements that were there in the garden are now at the new Jerusalem. But it doesn't stop there, see, because what we see in the, the Garden of Eden is the, the natural beauty of God's good creation. But in the new Jerusalem, we don't just have minerals, we have jewels. Now, if you're like me, you might not know the difference between these two. You're like, they're all fancy and pretty. What's the difference, okay? Well, a mineral is something that you find naturally in creation, but a, a jewel is when you take those minerals and when you work them over, when you beautify them, it, it takes a master artist in order to make those minerals all that they could fully be. And so what we see in this next part of the vision is creation perfected, see. Sometimes when we talk about the new Jerusalem and that, that heavenly future, we say, oh, it's going to be like a return to the Garden of Eden. We're just restoring Eden. And there's some truth to that. But we see it goes even further still because here it's not merely uh, reduplicating the garden, but it's taking it even further now is the garden perfected as the master artist, our God, has cultivated the good stuff of creation and made it even more wondrous and even more beautiful. And this is reflective of our vocation as his human creatures, as those who bear the image of God. See, God has not just called us to, to live naturally, to enjoy creation, but to live as artists and gardeners to cultivate the good stuff of creation and to bring out even more its glorious potential that is embedded within it. And finally, on the last day and in that renewed creation, we will see the glory and beauty that was already latent in this world. We'll see it be brought to its fulfillment and its fullness. It's creation perfected. And not only is it creation perfected, and those good gifts of nature that are made whole, but also culture. And that brings us to the last section of the, the vision in which we see culture redeemed. We look at that last paragraph, and what stands out to me are the things that are there and the things that are not there. So first of all, what's not there? There's no temple in the city, John says, 
Because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. We don't need a temple anymore to mediate God's presence to us. Now we will live in the immediate face-to-face presence with God. No temple anymore. And no longer is there need of sun or moon to shine on it. Because the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Now the light of our Lord Jesus, He Himself shines on us. We don't even need the sun anymore. There's no more need for sun or moon because the light radiates from our Lord Jesus. And therefore, there's no longer any night anymore. Anyone who has ever lived afraid of the dark doesn't have to fear any longer because the Lamb is the lamp and the light. And also this. It says there will be no impurity or uncleanness there either. And it's this last thing that makes me kind of surprised about what is present there in the New Jerusalem. And John says it twice to underscore it for emphasis. He says in in verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then again, verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now, what is this talking about? Now, when it speaks of the glory of the nations, it's talking about the crowning cultural achievements of the nations of the world. This is what it means when it says the glory of the nations. Those things that each of the, the different nations, you might think of the, whatever it is about each respective country on the world that they are most proud of. What is their best work? We heard in our Old Testament reading of the, the ships of Tarshish. You've thought recently about the ships of Tarshish. Oh yes, those glorious ships of Tarshish. Or we might think of the beer of Germany. Mm, yes. Or the baseball of America, our finest cultural import. Some people might say jazz. Or we could talk about all of these different things. In the ancient world, they would have spoken of the the seven wonders of the ancient world, perhaps. Or again, our Old Testament reading talked about the glory of Lebanon, which is its lumber. Okay, In other words, the glory of the nations is its crowning cultural achievement. Now, what's surprising that it would be included here is that This is coming from pagan nations, not just from God's people. In other words, it's not just saying, all right, all the good stuff from Christian culture is going to be there, right? Like all of your favorite Christian movies are going to be there in the New Jerusalem. It's saying that the beauty and the glory of all of the nations. But how does that work? If it says nothing unclean is going to enter into it. Well, see, the very best that humanity has created, what makes it unclean is not in itself, it's not an intrinsic value about it, but instead when it would have an idolatrous function, when the stuff that humans create is used in a way that's counter to God's purposes. But it doesn't mean that it's bad in itself. And what we see in the New Jerusalem is that just as humans will die and rise and so be redeemed, So also human culture is going to go through its own kind of death and resurrection and so be redeemed and used for God's good purposes eternally. Now we can't go too far here. We can't get too specific in what all is going to make the cut, if you will. But I think it's fair to say that Bach and beer and baseball are going to be there, right? Some of the the beauties of God's good world, the things that humanity has created, has cultivated from his already good world, we have taken it one step further. What have we made of the world? That's the glory of the nations. And it's stuff that you and I 
even contribute to in our vocations. Which brings us back to where we started in this question of of how Paul could say that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It makes perfect sense why we would end that chapter on the resurrection with that precise admonition and encouragement. Because what we see in the New Jerusalem is life in the light of the risen Lamb. We see what life is like in the light of the resurrected Jesus. Because in the light of the resurrection, nothing is wasted. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, all the good works carried out in faith and through the power of the Spirit, they endure. Sometimes I think as Christians, we can get this impression that our life in this world, we're just killing time until Jesus comes again. We're just dribbling out the clock. And then maybe in the meantime, we can, you know, help out at church, and and that's a good thing. Or, you know, we can try to be nice to people, and that's just what we ought to do. But otherwise, we're just, you know, shuffling the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because Jesus is risen. The lives that you have touched, the students whom you have taught, the, the, the customers that you have cared for, the neighbors that you have spoken to in kindness, the children and grandchildren that you have reared up, none of that is wasted. In light of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, everything matters. It all finally is gathered up and collected by our Savior, by the risen Lamb. And on the last day said, it is good again. We need this reminder when so often in our lives it can feel like it's just a waste. What are we doing with ourselves? When we feel like, am I really having an impact? Am I I really connecting with people? Is the stuff that I devote my labors to day after day, does it matter? I had a quick reminder of this this past week, and I'll, I'll close with this. I was talking with a friend out in Washington State, and I was lamenting to him about how sometimes, you know, I write a lot. You guys may have noticed. I like writing. And sometimes it feels like, you know, I can just write and write and write and write, but does it, does it really matter? Or would I be better off doing something else, right? But he says, Pastor, I want, you to, I want to tell you about one person that it did matter to. I said, I need to hear this information. He says, you know the copier guy? I said, no, I don't know the copier guy. He says, well, you don't remember this guy, but we had a, a copier guy at our church up in Washington State. And he would come in, and copier guys are an interesting lot because they kind of get to be flies on the wall, right? And listen to the conversations that happen around the church and sometimes, you know, to pick up the papers that come out of the copier. He says, so our copier guy, he was coming week by week, and he was collecting some of the papers that were coming out of the copier. And he said he was reading some of the things that you had written. You never met this guy. But he kept reading some of your writings and it encouraged him to start bringing his family to church. By this time, I had already left. And he said a couple years later, after that fellow and his family had been coming to church, he had discerned a call to the ministry. And now that guy is at the seminary. He said, Pastor, your writings, you might think that it's not worth anything, but who knows how the Lord's going to use it. And so it is for each and every one of us in ways that you may not realize in this life. The Lord is using you to touch others so that when we work well, 
in the power of God's Spirit and by faith. We are giving others a taste of the new Jerusalem and perhaps even providing its furnishings. Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.